Welcome to Deeper Questions. Submerge in wonder, surface with hope. I'm your host, Aaron Johnstone. Today we're responding to the question, how do we build tech-healthy habits? Technology has always had a transformative effect on culture and identity, but the internet has arguably been the most revolutionary in terms of democratising information, resources, innovation and consumerism. For all the gains the internet allows us by cutting out middlemen, gatekeepers and institutions, there's still a dark underbelly that regularly protrudes out of the shirt and into real life. So the question of how we can build a healthy relationship with our technology is a poignant one, but also how and when we introduce this technology to our children. For it can be a source of anxiety and concern for parents who just feel totally unequipped to pass on something they probably haven't mastered themselves. And the idea of granting unfettered access seems perilous, but pure abstinence and prohibition won't work either. It's just become such a pivotal part of modern life. So how do we navigate it? Imagine playing the piano 60 hours a week. The average Australian adult now practices the internet 9.4 hours a day. Like that's the type of neuroplastic changes you're going to experience. Well, today, we have Daniel C. joining us to help us think about technology in the context of modern life, but also in our family lives and how we can build good habits together. Daniel C. is an award-winning author, professional speaker, and director of Space Makers, a productivity consulting group for busy leaders. His first book, Space Maker, How to Unplug, Unwind, and Think Clearly in the Digital Age, has won a stack of awards here in Australia and internationally. He's also recently given a TEDx talk on how to make space in a world with too much technology. So there's that too. His latest book, Raising Tech Healthy Humans, is a practical guidebook to help parents reset their children's tech habits and give them a great start to life. And it's an excellent read. As a trainer, coach, and keynote speaker, Daniel has worked with CEOs, executives, and other senior professionals throughout Australia and beyond. So he's a great guy to have in the chair next to me today. Thanks for having me here. Looking forward to the conversation, Aaron. So, uh, you recently gave a TEDx talk, and uh, your experience was somewhat uh, unique, I believe. Uh, do you want to share what went down <laughs> that day? Yeah, I don't know if it's completely unique, because everyone was nervous and a little bit uh, worried before the event, as as I've realised. But yes, I was prepared, and for a TEDx talk, you stand behind the curtain, the black curtain, and you're all mic'd up, and you're ready to go... The music happens, they introduce you and all the audience applauds. Uh, and just as I was about to step on stage, I dropped the uh, laser pointer and it landed on this kind of hard stage floor behind set, luckily, uh, and the batteries fell out. And I was like, oh, no. And, and the TEDx uh, volunteer behind me was kind of swearing as she was trying to put oh, wow, in. Oh, swearing. So put, it, was, put, it was an emergency. It was definitely an emergency. And we tried to get the batteries back in. And, and literally, I was walking on stage. It'll be interesting to see when the video happens if you see it. But I was walking on stage trying to click the click back into place and thinking the whole time, I really hope my slides work. So it wasn't the best start to a TEDx talk, but everything else went well from there. So I'm really grateful. Awesome. <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing uh, what, it, what it looks like when it does come out. Uh, so Dan, you're a pastor and technology coach, um, or at least an ex-pastor. Uh, usually these things are utterly incompatible when I watch most pastors attempt to use PowerPoints. Uh, <laughs> So could you tell us a bit about how these things have come together in your life? Oh, how to be a pastor and a productivity coach. So I used to be a physiotherapist. That was my first career. So maybe three Ps. I hadn't thought about it like that. But uh, And then I ended up having this kind of, obviously, a passion for doing ministry and, and doing more for my church. So I led into doing part-time ministry. Uh, and I had this side hustle. And really the side hustle began because as a physiotherapy manager at the time, I was leading a bunch of health services. I just got frustrated with how I was working and how others were working. And I started to become really passionate about the idea of, well, what if we thought about the way we worked? It started with email, actually, because I realized that I had four years of undergraduate physio training and then a whole lot of other experiences in terms of learning. And yet then I found myself spending... I don't know, three hours a day reading and responding to this thing called email and no one had given me any training whatsoever. And I thought, what other profession would you spend nearly a third of your life doing something that no one trained you in that impacted so much of my world? And so I started to be a geek, like I was a physiotherapist, so I read research, so I read email research and I realized there's a whole lot of stuff you can do differently. So we created this side hustle course just for fun called Email Ninja 
which just started to be about how to get your inbox to zero and manage high volume email. Mm. So that was just for fun. It was just one of those kind of things that happened. But over time, that built momentum. And then I found myself being a part-time pastor and a part-time guy who does stuff that we ended up calling productivity. So I ended up being a productivity consultant. Yeah. Uh, so you swallowed up with even more emails. Yeah, more emails, yeah. But, you know, I went from emails to email ninja to list assassin to priority samurai to meeting dojo. It got more and more silly as we kept going along. Yeah. <laughs> silly yeah. slash cool. You can do that as a side hustle because you don't expect it to be a job. Yeah. And then one day I realized I'm, I'm enjoying this so much it's time to dive headlong into this and uh, make it a real business. So... Uh, yeah. To, un- to answer your question, what's connected? Mm. The, the connection in my mind, I mean, there's lots of them, but the connections are the company is called Space Makers. So I care a lot about helping busy people make space. So in my mind, whether <laughs> when I think about what heaven will be like, we're not going to have email notifications or Instagram Sounds right <laughs> like to news me. feeds. We're not going to be hurried and busy. So we're going to have some space. Uh, and the other connection in my mind is that productivity is essentially not about ticking stuff off your list and it's not about getting more done. It's not about being efficient and organized. I mean, Oliver Berkman talks a lot about that in 4,000 weeks, that we're never going to have enough time. We'll we'll never have enough ability to get everything organized in this digital age with AI and everything else. So, So what is productivity? Well, it's about knowing who you are and what you're trying to achieve in life and then aligning your habits accordingly. So that very much aligns with ministry because it's about who we are and why we exist and how we live. So I think there's a connection. Yeah, yeah, definitely seems to fit together pretty well. And so um, continuing on your your journey there, you've, you've now written a couple of books on technology. And uh, we'll dabble a bit with uh, both of those books, some of the themes that come out of those. But I mostly want to zoom in on your latest book uh, on family life and technology. So your second book there, you, you start by sharing an experience you had in your family, and which probably happens for most families most days. Uh, that is waking up uh, on the weekend to find every person in the house immersed in their device and seemingly uh, immune to real-life interactions, responsibilities, and opportunities for connection that come with real-life relationships. Um, so could you uh, relive, retell that moment for us, uh, as long as it's not like traumatic for you, and tell us why this area is, is something uh, of personal importance to you? Yeah. I mean, so I wrote that I wrote that particular story up, I suppose, as an example of an ordinary moment. You know, it wasn't an extraordinary moment. I just came upstairs and saw everyone on screens, all my kids watching their you know, individual devices. And, you know, it was a Saturday and I was like, oh, let's hang out together as a family and spend time together because I finally had a day off and I'd been on screens all week doing massive amounts of work. Mm. And, you know, I said good morning and they kind of ignored me because they were focusing and I I lost my chisel (laughs) and I got grumpy and said, how long have you been on your devices? And they had an argument with me and and it kind of went downhill from there. Uh, So in, in my book, I talk about that. I suppose there's one example of how technology can create a lot of tension in families. Mm. Uh, and, and of course, technology is fantastic and there's some wonderful things about them being online, but there's this ever-growing tension of how much time my kids are on screens, how much I struggle with that, how much I'm on screens, and, and how, do we, how do we use technology well as a family? How do I help them become healthy, happy humans uh, using technology but not letting it be become the center or the the gravitational center of our family life all the time. Yeah, yeah, and to recognize my responses in that as well. Yeah, particularly like the impacts there. Like you're talking about the weekend setting. Like it seems to affect uh, how you collectively rest as a family as well. Kind of uh, yeah, reshapes life in that sense, doesn't it? Mm, I mean, look, all of life is currently reshaped and will continue to be reshaped by tech and, you know, soon to be AI in a more tangible way. And, you know, so I think that's part of the world we live in. The the question I have in raising tech healthy humans is what's our imagination for life and what's our imagination for humanity? And then how do we try to shape our tech habits within the imagination we want for ourselves and our kids rather than just by default allow 
you know, the habits that come from Silicon Valley tech companies and the apps we use to shape our family life? And, and how do you navigate the complexities of that? Yeah, I like that. So kind of um, choosing your own imagination rather than having it appear before you on the screen. Yeah, choose your own adventure where possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, great. So uh, obviously to write these books, I presume you read a lot of books and did a heap of research um, studying the effects of technology. Um, could you tell us generally what happens to us when we develop an unhealthy relationship with technology? So you're talking adults or kids? Yeah, let's start or... off generally. So adults yeah. um, and then, yeah, we can hone in on uh, children as well. Yeah. So, I mean, my first book is about making space. So that is for adults and and technology. Let me go this way. Okay. So when, when I was young, I played the piano and practiced about 20 minutes you know, 15 minutes every day when my parents forced me to. And over time, I started to enjoy the piano and I, I eventually could play, you know, I don't know, pieces by Mozart and Chopin without actually having to look at the sheet music. I wasn't yeah. fantastic, but that's an example of neuroplasticity where the brain changes based on what we do habitually. We know this, okay? So we all know that whatever we do, whether it be practicing a sport or learning an art, uh, learning a language, our brain changes literally molds and shapes in order to become different. And so we become different and we see the world differently. Mm. Uh, the reality is that the average Australian adult now practices the internet 9.4 hours a day or 65, I think, hours a week and office workers yeah, more. So if you think about, imagine playing the piano 60 hours a week, like that's the type of neuroplastic changes you're going to experience if you practice the internet that much is very strong and significant. And so uh, the, the challenge with internet overuse is that unlike too much food or spending too much money, that the changes that are happening inside of us and they're hard to recognize until you experience some kind of signs and symptoms that don't feel quite right, that <laughs> don't quite feel like the human I used to be. Uh, and they tend to be things like, I can't focus as much. Mm. I can't read a book. I, I don't have the ability to simply be in silence and think my own thoughts and enjoy them mm. or to pay attention to my surroundings or or maybe just have a conversation like this, you know, you and I, without getting bored and feeling like I need to check my notifications or show you something on a screen in order to keep the conversation going. Does that make sense? So there's a whole lot of small small symptoms that are usually around focus and attention and the fracturing of our concentration or relationships mm. that are signs that we are using the internet or using technology too much. And that's not to reject how wonderful technology is, but... Uh, it, it's literally an upside-down curve that you need technology to be productive, but if you have too much time online and are never offline, if you're practicing the internet 9.4 hours a day or more from the first time you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, well, then you start to experiencing something that is not so great for your health, your productivity, or even your happiness. So it's largely cognitive effects. I think it's cognitive, but it's also it's cognitive, but it's also happiness effects actually. Mm. Uh, and and it may not be, for example, that I don't know five hours on Instagram's bad for your mental health. I mean, I suspect it is. Well, that's that's a bit extreme. But let's say two hours a day on Instagram is bad for your mental health or TikTok. It it probably is from the research, but it's not completely kind of. We're not 100% sure yet, but what we're definitely doing is those two hours we're spending on TikTok each day are not spent on something else because we only have a finite amount of time, right? Mm. And the research is definitely saying, well, what we're missing out on is physical exercise, is in-person relationships and community relationships. It's science and solitude. It's reading physical books, playing instruments. It's learning crafts and arts. and It's basically doing everything else of humanity that we used to do with those two to three to four hours a day that we're now spending online. And those things have been definitely shown to increase our happiness, mm -hmm. our long life and our productivity, our health. So it's not just focus and attention. It's actually just our sense of well-being is lost because of what we're not doing because of the trade-off. It sounds uh, almost sad, like um, that there's this sense of deprivation where we could be living this full holistic sort of life, but we're making choices that uh, it's a much smaller kind of circle of the, the things that will bring us happiness. Yeah, in some ways, as, as our world grows, it shrinks. Mm. <laughs> That's, I mean, I noticed that in the pandemic. I found that I was now building networks and genuine relationships, which I really value with people all around the world. 
and I still connect with people in that way and I've got clients everywhere now, which is fantastic. So in some ways, technology has allowed my world to expand in a tremendous way and I'm so grateful for that. Uh, and paradoxically, my world shrunk and I realized, wow, I don't actually have many friends anymore where I live. I don't have coffees and I don't kick the football and I don't, I mean, I don't, I, I'm not spending anywhere near as much time with actual people in my own suburb and that's actually a real loss in my life. Yeah. So it's it's always a catch-22. There are benefits and negatives of being online, but we need to be able to align our values and our and our habits with what we really want for life, and that's where it's about reflection. Um, so let's zoom in now um, and think about younger, more malleable brains. So could you talk about neuroplasticity and what happens to our brain when children spend too much time engulfed in screens? So even children have different brains based on their age. So when you look at really young children, like babies, toddlers, I mean, they're literally like sponges and every single new experience has a, has a dramatic effect in terms of their development and their growth. And obviously, you know, kids continue to, <laughs> to grow and learn. Their brains then remodel around when they're teenagers, if I'm simplifying things. And, and the brain actually isn't fully formed until like an adult brain with a prefrontal cortex that really thinks clearly until they're about 22, some say 25. Uh, so, so there's a change all the way. But what I would say as an overarching sense is that the experiences you give your kids at a young age have a, a very significant effect. And the experiences that they don't have because they're not climbing trees or riding bikes or kicking the football or reading physical books or playing board games because, for example, they might be so much, they might be on screen so much, will also have a, an impact on their development. Mm. Uh, so it's just really important that we're considering what types of screens they have and what type of life experiences they have when they're particularly young and then grading them up into tech as they grow up. So your your book, Raising Tech Healthy Humans, is all about giving your kids the best possible start when it comes to their, their tech hab habits and relationship with technology. And um, one of the, the helpful things that you say from the get-go is that our goal is to raise adults. Um, so what, what exactly do you mean by that? Mm. Well, again, it's probably like this is my productivity training. You know, Stephen Covey, one of the productivity gurus, said that we should begin with the end in mind, which you've probably heard that expression before. Uh, and what that really means is when you make decisions in life, you want to think about what the end game is and, and how your habits or practices or behaviors are leading you in that direction. And so one of the things that someone said to me once when I was when I first became a dad was that actually don't forget you're not raising children, you're raising adults. So I found that really helpful. So he, was, he wasn't he was saying that we shouldn't allow our kids to be kids and muck about and get muddy and have no responsibility and do all the fun, silly things that kids do. He wasn't saying we should put responsibilities on them before their time, but he was saying that when you make choices about your kids, whether it be do they need to eat their vegetables as a one-year-old or not, you know, to, you know, how much time should they spend on Fortnite or TikTok or when should you get their phones or all those kind of small choices should be made in the context not of what they need right now, but what type of adult are they going to become through these choices? Will the, will the habits and practices that they develop by these decisions lead them to be adults with character and empathy and self-control, emotional regulation, the ability to be communal, people who love others and can focus and concentrate, they're the kind of decisions I think we should draw into our current decisions. Uh, and if we do that, I think we would often make different decisions in terms of particularly tech and kids. Yeah, so it's approaching it with intentionality and instilling mm. values that you want them to, to cherish and prize as an adult, but starting that young while still letting them have the, the fun around that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Now, obviously, we can't disown technology completely. You've uh, you already talked about that a little bit, but uh, we also don't want to let it govern every waking moment either. One of your ideas that I love in developing a healthy relationship with technology is um, keeping pace and making space. Uh, so what are some of your top tips for, for making space from technology? Uh, so we're back to adults then? I guess so, yeah. Because I think I don't think kids can self-regulate if you give them like, – a, a seven-year-old can't regulate if it comes to TikTok. That, that's my conclusion. <laughs> a 45-year-old like me can't regulate when it comes to that either, but I can regulate a bit more. So um, but that's why I always keep asking which one. Hmm. But in terms, of, in terms of making space for adults, uh, looking at the leaders I coach – Many of the people who use technology the most are actually the least productive. So I tried to work out, well, 
what's that relationship between tech and productivity? And so what I, what I discovered looking at the research from sleep debt research to multitasking research to neuroplasticity is that you need technology to be productive. And so I call them the habits of keeping pace. They're the habits, you know, in my field of using your inbox so well that you get it to zero every day. You know how to use online to-do lists and Trello and Asana and, and you know, Monday and uh, you know how to use WordPress and Evernote and all those kind of tools to get productive. Okay, so you use technology really, really well. That's called keeping pace. Yeah. And we know that. We know that we need to use tech and to use it well, even though some of us struggle to learn those skills. Then you reach this productive middle where more technology won't make you more productive. And then if you continue reaching for your phone, first thing when you wake up, last thing at night, never offline, then then you slide into digital overuse. And that's where you need the habits of making space. Mm. So they're the habits of deliberately unplugging as a skill and as a habit in order to be productive and happy and healthy. And that is different than five years ago mm. or pre-COVID because I think now we're in a situation where for many of us, particularly in my field, if I'm not intentional about unplugging and disconnecting from my devices, I'll almost always be online. Like online is my normative human condition. Yeah. And if I want time where I'm not on a device, I have to intentionally build that in as a skill and as a habit. That's really quite new, right? Sure. So they're the habits of making space. Uh, so I know you asked practically what what they meant. I kind of just felt I had to frame it, if that's okay. That's really helpful to frame it like that. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. I so. only ask because they're quite different answers. Yeah. I, I mean, I just think kids are so different. Like for adults, I say, in, you know, making space is about self-regulation and building patterns. Yeah. For kids, like if they're six, don't give them TikTok. Yeah, you've got to make that decision <laughs> They just can't them. self-regulate no matter what you do. They can't not reach for chocolate. Yeah. So don't give them don't something that is highly path. addictive and designed to make their brains go crazy. <laughs> so so it's, a, it's a bit of a different. Yeah, it's totally understand. Cool. Well, let's uh, let's go to more general uh, questions here. So let's explore some of the reasons of why it's hard to keep technology at bay. And uh, a book you and I were discussing a few weeks back was um, Johan Hari's book Stolen Focus. And in particular, he has this idea of cruel optimism, where we're kind of led to believe that it's simply a matter of individual willpower which will determine our technological habits and future. Um, if we simply turn off our notifications or delete our apps and our social media profiles or be disciplined in the times that we use them, then there'll be no problem. Right? Or if there is a problem, it's your, your own fault. There's nothing else to blame. But that book helpfully kind of shows that it's a lot more complicated than that. And um, he shares a pretty chilling quote that a software engineer shared uh, with the US Senate <laughs> saying, you can try having self-control, but there are a thousand engineers on the other side of the screen working against you. So you've got that, that kind of working in there. And I think just over time, it feels like some of the shine and the aura of tech companies has kind of worn off uh, as their predatory practices and acknowledgements make their way into public consciousness. So my question is, do you think it helps knowing now that these apps and devices are designed to addict us, essentially? Mm. Look, I, th I think truth is always valuable and we do need to we do, we do need to be confronted with some of the hard realities. I, I think some of the ways in which we're receiving those hard messages can be softened because people don't respond to, you know, despair. They do need hope and they do need practical solutions to move forward. But yes, I mean, I think one of the hard realities is we are using devices which are really, but particularly apps, which are built on a business model, which is what I like about uh, Johan Hari's book. He talks about how the business model behind particularly social media, but Google and Gmail and others are fundamentally designed to make us addicted because they make money when we check our notifications every six minutes and spend a lot of time eyeballing our devices. So on, on the one hand, yes, absolutely, we're using tools which are highly addictive and are designed to be so. Uh, but But I think the hope within that... Uh, well, part of the hope is that we can be kind on ourselves and not think it's always just us. I mean, I train hundreds of people and one of the aha moments when I talk about this stuff is that, oh, it's not me. <laughs> like, no, it's not you. Mm. We're all fried. Like, yeah. We're all distracted. We're all struggling with tech in some ways as much as we're all getting benefits from tech as well. Mm. Uh, and so in that sense, I think there's a collective relief that it's not just us. So that that can be something positive. And and I, I actually really agree with 
pretty much the whole synopsis that you see in Stolen Focus. It's a great book. Uh, the hard bit about that book is it doesn't really offer you solutions except for we need to change the system. And of course, that's valuable. And I really believe in that. But I still think there's also value in individuals looking at what's in their circle of influence, what, what can you actually change and control, uh, and then making small steps within that. And I definitely feel like you can make space to a certain extent hmm. using the devices. And part of that is recognizing, yes, they're highly addictive. So I not only need to make space through discipline, but I need to put in actual barriers and guardrails in my life when I can't uh, control my own tech habits. Yeah, for sure. And um, one of the things that can appreciate about your work as well is that like you encourage bringing it out into the open but then doing it in the context of community as well um because uh ultimately through uh when other people are doing the same things as you are at least trying to that's where some of the the magic can happen and, and change can be achievable mm, absolutely and, and we could talk about community in a in a relational sense but even a community in a workplace makes a difference because we're you know, we're herd animals and we find that we're shaped by the habits of people around us mm. uh, even when it comes to something like email something as simple as saying to a group of people and training a group of people uh, you know when like someone sends you an email and then you, you phone them five minutes later and say, did you get my email? It's not really an acceptable behavior. That's <laughs> that's showing that you're using email like a phone and experiencing this kind of real-time back-and-forth hyperactivity that is so shaped by the notifications that we use. So you can get a whole group of people in a workplace who are who are realizing, oh, yeah, we are using email in a really kind of addictive way. Hmm these are some of the changes we'd like to make together and these are some of the new norms we'd like to practice, well, then you can start to help everyone in the system. Yes. Uh, similarly, when I work with schools and kids, you know, I love getting into a school and when, you know, a whole school, for example, uh, allows me to do training and they support it and maybe we provide books and then the, the principal says in primary school we want it to be abnormal for kids to use social media, certainly not the norm. Well, it's so much easier for a parent to say no to, I don't know, TikTok when someone's seven years old or a phone when they're you know, six or seven when the majority of parents are actually having similar conversations as opposed to being the only parent in the school whose kid doesn't have this app. Yeah, for uh, sure. And, and so, again, shaping culture does work, even if it's in mic a microcosm within the bigger challenging structures that we're seeing around us in Western culture. So let's get to a question that I'm sure every parent is asking um, who has teenagers uh, or they're about to get that sort of age. When should I get my child their first smartphone and any other advice that you have to help parents raise tech-healthy tweens and teens? Yeah, it's not a small question. <laughs> uh, look, I, I do write extensively about that particular question in my book, but as a summary, I would say go slow, which means go slower. So there's, not, there's not a right age, but I would say go slower than the norm in almost every area of tech nowadays with kids. So if everyone around you is, you know, if all the kids in your class are getting a phone when they're, I don't know, in year four, five and six in primary school, maybe go slower than that. <laughs> if they're all on social media and Instagram by the time they're in year five and six, then go slower than that. I mean, one of the simple norms is, you know, when it comes to, let's say, social media, you are meant to be 13 years old. And if you're not, you're lying. I mean, so that's a pretty easy ethic in some ways. We try to have our kids not lie. So mm. that's a bit of a guide. But the reason, the reason for going slow with phones, particularly own phones, I'm not talking about dumb phones for safety where yeah. a child can actually, you know, call their parent or text if they needed to, but anything that's internet enabled and open access. Uh, I mean, the, the, the reasons we give our kids phones early is we think they're being safer if we do that. And, and we don't want them to nag and to just continue to feel like they're left out. Yeah, and we really care about our kids. We care about our kids. We don't want them to be like the last kid picked on the soccer field. You know, we don't want them to be the last kid without yeah. a device or an app. So we, we give these apps and, and devices to kids out of love, but we're a bit ignorant in thinking about why we're doing it and what the reality is. Hmm. Because in reality, the, the, the stats don't line up in terms of kids being safer by having phones. When you look at the amount of exposure to violent, aggressive porn, which is really 
like it's ubiquitous and it's very damaging for kids and their mental health and their happiness. That comes through phones. Uh, when when we look at cyberbullying, uh, sleep sleep deprivation, when we look at body image issues, mental health issues, like my, many of the issues that we're worried about for our kids that are really damaging our kids' health are coming through our devices that we're giving them for safety. And the things that we're worried about, you know, a stranger kidnapping them is extraordinarily rare. And I don't know if a phone is going to stop it anyway in most situations. And they can, of course, have a dumb phone. So I just think the reasons we're giving kids devices are actually not well thought through. And and ironically, the very things that we want to protect our kids with by giving them devices are the things that are actually making them unsafe. Yeah, we're opening up a whole other uh, door to, for all these threats to come in, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's not to say that the internet's not important and it won't be an important part of their lives, but it is to recognize that a phone is an adult device built for the adult world. Mm. And we need to treat it that way. So to give your child an out-of-the-box device without filtering, without parental controls and parental contracts and, and conversations and, and norms and rhythms, which I talk about in my book, but just giving them a phone and saying, hey, good luck, uh, it's it's actually quite irresponsible. I know parents don't mean to be, but it, it's setting them up to be exposed to a whole lot of things in the adult world that they simply are not ready or able to be exposed to. Mm. And I do like what Chris McKenna says from um, Protect Young Eyes in America. He says, you know, it's time for parents to to leave the land of if and to enter the reality of when. If you give your child an adult device that is unfiltered, it's not if, it's when will they watch hardcore porn? When will they be exposed to cyberbullying? When will they be exposed to some pretty hardcore things through the internet? Yeah. And that's a really hard message for parents, but it's better that they hear it before it happens so they can be proactive in setting their kids up with really well-designed devices that can grade up as they grow up. Another thing uh, in your book, it forms the basis of your book in many ways, is you've got this starter framework, um, which is a, a way of navigating this in a family setting. And so your first one uh, is all about starting with the self. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, self-reflection is the first step to anything, particularly parenting and tech. And so definitely before you point to your kids and say, look at their screen use and look how addicted they are, my first question is, well, what are your habits and what behaviors are you modeling in your home with regards to tech? You know, I mean, a, a classic, you know, I'm, I'm the guy who writes books about not getting addicted to tech. And, you know, there, there's been times when, I don't know, my kids have just opened up the toilet and there I am scanning the news sitting on the toilet. I mean, it's like disgusting habit, but, but it wasn't just a gross habit for me. It was a, it was a habit that I was communicating my values to them as yeah. well. You know, if, and that's probably a bit of a gross example, but <laughs> yeah, we all do pretty it. Pretty we all do it. But if, but if I'm, if I'm sitting on the couch and saying to the kids, Oh, you're on your phones all the time or you're always on your devices. And then I pull out, I don't know whether it be Gmail or the news, or maybe I'm just playing Candy Crush and they can't tell the difference. Mm. And so it's, it's really important to start by reflecting on your own relationship with technology, uh, the way that you express your loves and longings and desires and identity through your phone and, and the messages you're passing on to your kids through your own activities. And that's the hardest message. So start with self. But it's also the most liberating message because starting with yourself is totally within your circle of influence. <laughs> mm. And you have the ability to change your own habits and to model something differently. And then that'll help create a path for communicating how you might like to change your family habits. And that's just a really helpful principle for life in general, isn't it? To self-reflect and have those moments of introspection and to rechart your course when you need to. But yes, yeah, certainly with technology. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so we've done S, and the second uh, one you've got there is T, and that stands for take it slowly. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, also I think we've talked a bit about taking slowly, so the idea that go slower for many things than the culture around you, yeah. and that sucks. I mean, it, it really, really sucks that to be, a, I, I think, to, to make healthy tech choices with our kids, I'm talking about kids from you know, maybe zero to teens particularly, mm. it sucks that we have to go against the norm, mm. you know, that we might need to say no when others around us are saying yes and where we might need to have conversations about, hey, you know, that, that movie actually is an MA movie and we really care about your 
mind and your heart and your soul. And so we're going to say no to that. I'm sorry that all your friends have seen it and I wish they hadn't, but we love you enough to say no. That sucks to have to say that again and again and again, Mm. framed in love and framed in relationship. But at the same time, it's not good for my kids to watch horror movies when they're three years old, in year three. You know what I mean? Like, and, and our culture has gone way further than what is healthy. Again, not not because it's bad or because people around us are bad, but they've been largely shaped by the forces of Silicon Valley and consumer forces that are pushing at an earlier and earlier age for young kids to have devices for their education mm. to, to keep up yeah. uh, and in order to be safe. And all of them are not in line with reality. No doubt as a parent, like we're going back to the, the point of wanting to raise adults, well, mm. we're wanting to instill these values of putting up personal barriers and not uh, giving into the the consumeristic culture, which just tries everything out there, um, even when it's to our own detriment. Absolutely. Um, I think you've covered age-appropriate setup uh, a bit already, so we'll we'll probably skip that one. But this one looks like an important one. The letter R, regular talk. Mm. Yeah, so, I mean, conversations are so critical. And someone once said to me, I think it was a real estate agent, he said, you know, when you think about a shop, the number one thing you need to think about is location, location, location. You know, we're talking bricks and mortar before the internet, but uh, it's so true. You know, if you set up your shop in the wrong spot, you're in trouble. And I would say for parenting, it's it's relationship, relationship, relationship. You know, it's a really, it's a foundation. And if you don't have that foundation, well, then all the tech boundaries and tech conversations aren't going to work. So I think technology can be fantastic to augment and strengthen relationships if we shape it right. Mm. Uh, And so on the one hand, you know, I love that we can use technology to have amazing conversations about our values, about the world around us, uh, and just to have fun together. Mm. So it's it's great to have family movie night and to talk about the characters in the movies and the storylines and what we can learn from it and what we wouldn't want to copy, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, It can be bonding to, you know, play similar games with each other and and just to connect over the things that the kids are interested in. So in that sense, I think technology, if you have the right mindset, can be fantastic if you're talking regularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, it can also help shape their character when you have to critique technology as well. And so we've had a lot of our, our best conversations around our family values and our faith by talking about what we've seen online where it really isn't in line with reality. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, I don't know, having a hookup is actually going to really make someone feel good the next morning. I'm not, I'm not sure drinking that much will actually make someone popular. <laughs> it might just make them unhealthy and help them to hurt their friends. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm, yeah, I'm just pulling apart some of the myths that are out there. Yeah, and, and technology is great for that as well. So have conversations around what you love and what you don't love and, and build a culture where you're talking around tech and values and family. Uh, T is for tech healthy rhythms. What's that about? Mm, Well, look, you can have guardrails like having filters and having parental controls and time limits on when the internet starts and stops. And that stuff's really useful as kids grow up to protect them from some of the worst of the internet. Uh, But the aim is to raise adults, not kids. And so we need to train them in positive, life-giving ways to engage in the world. Uh, and I've found that rhythms in the family are one of the best ways to do that. Uh, so whether they be a, like a non-tech rhythm, like, I don't know, we go bike riding every Saturday and, and we give kids a love for nature, for example, that's a rhythm which is likely to be passed on in some ways as they grow up, even though you're not saying, hey, I'm passing on the values of physical exercise and enjoying nature. Yeah. You just do it and, and it becomes a pattern and then it becomes embedded in their life. Uh, mm. Similarly, non-tech rhythms uh, or tech-healthy rhythms are another way to do that. So when we eat dinner, we don't allow phones to be at the table. When someone texts me, I don't go check that text message, you know, and I don't answer the phone if someone calls, even if I want to look something up because we're talking about something and it would be great to Google it. I don't do it. I don't do that until after dinner because dinner is a place where we talk and we connect. Yeah. For us, it's sacrosanct. It's a place where we share stories, where we say grace, where we connect with people we love. And that's better done in my mind without a phone. And I didn't have to tell my kids, oh, when you get a phone, you're not allowed to bring it to the table 
because all their life they grew up with the table being a tech-free place. And so now that my kids have phones, well, it's like they just follow what we created as a tech-free rhythm. That's the power of patterns and rhythms when they're aligned with your values. So Mm. I talk in the book about how do you actually work out what your values are and then align your patterns as part of your parenting and, and hence the term uh, non-tech rhythms. Yeah, I love that. And um, yeah, this feeds into the next one uh, very well. So encouraging adventures, you have like a, a list of cajillion activities <laughs> that, that families can give a try. And uh, yeah, one of the things like just reflecting on what you were saying a moment ago, by sharing the things that you love and that are kind of fitting with your family rhythms sort of thing, but it's cool when the kids actually start to own them for themselves and, and love them in their own right um, as well. But so E, uh, encouraging adventures. What's that one all about? Ah, oh, look, encouraging adventures. Again, you'd, I'm going back to Stephen Covey again because I'm a productivity guy, you know, and he, he talks about saying no for a greater yes. So if we're saying no to too much screen time and no to too much tech, it's not because we're trying to be abolitionists. We're, we're trying to give them a humanity that is rich and full and beautiful. And so what are the greater yeses that you want to fill kids' time with and fill your life with? that replace that extra screen hour or the extra time online. And so I think a lot of that is about encouraging true adventures where they have an adventurous spirit, where they get outdoors, where they do fun stuff, when they're connecting with real people in real places and doing the kind of things that we actually imagine life to be about. I mean, I I asked my kids once, what what are some of the best memories of your life? I want, what are some of the best experiences? And I loved what they said. Like they, they literally talked about, I jumped on the trampoline once with my neighbor. Full stop. Oh, wow. I took you to Disneyland in in Paris. And all I could have done is say, go next door, jump on the trampoline. They they talked about me playing guitar to them at night and using this kind of star book, which was a bit silly and making dumb jokes. Like, uh, best moment of their life, you know, and... Uh, and Super I basic, think but it's basic. It's human, though, and mm. I love that. And when I think about the best moments of my life, they are, honestly, they are with people I love and care about, usually outdoors, doing adventures, maybe something spiritual, something that was challenging and that we won something together or achieved something with others. It's not the consumer things. It's not the tech things usually. It's it's usually the life stuff. Mm. And so encouraging adventures is having an imagination of, yeah, what if we got our kids to, to ride bikes and climb trees and and I don't know. You know Bruise their knee from time to time. Yeah, even things with tech, you know, laser tag. And I'm, I'm not anti-tech, but but let's fill our life with meaningful activities. And that's and that's what that kind of part of the book is about. Wonderful. And the final one, uh, another R, rely on others. Mm. So this one uh, sounds pretty important and uh, I think we've touched on it a little bit, but uh, yeah, tell me more. Well, we talked about community and the importance of it to a certain extent, but I just think we're so individualized in our, well, in our way of seeing the world. I mean, this is the Western culture we live in. There's some beautiful things about being an individual and shaping the world the way we want, but there's a lot of loneliness in that. And it's really hard to parent as, well, you know, certainly it's really hard to parent as a sole parent. It's really hard to parent if you're just a nuclear family or if you're just very isolated from other parents or others who do life with you. So I I think that tech-healthy parenting often begins with community Hmm. and finding like-minded people who you can share your grief and struggles and losses and challenges with and others who can also reinforce the types of lifestyle you want to see for your kids and families. Mm. And so in the book, I get quite practical, you know, how did we actually build a community around us when we moved to Tasmania, when we didn't have family or friends, and how might you again create some patterns in your life where you're filling your lives with particular people and then having conversations that allow you to, I suppose, have a village to raise your kids rather than it just being you. There are so many people who have impacted my kids' lives who have skills that I just simply couldn't bring to the table. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we went co-steering last week. I wouldn't have a clue how to co-steer, but one of our friends said, let's do it. Yeah, They're an outdoor red instructor, and we all put on helmets and, you know, jumped off the blowhole. So it was it was fantastic. Wow. And I couldn't bring that to my kids. That's about community, mm. and I, I just think that's really important. And it sounds like such a helpful overarching point uh, as a way to just go about life in general. Like that's so much bigger than just a technology point. It will then enrich your technological relationships, but um, Mm. just a a handy thing to be thinking about regardless, isn't it? Well, I think it's both a means and an end. So on the one hand, community allows us to make space 
it allows us to to change who we are, to have our own selfishness and our own perspectives moulded and shaped, uh, and it allows our, our kids to experience other voices, but it also allows, it, it's an end in the sense of I, I think life is more meaningful when it's shared with others. Mm. And one of the things that COVID did, which was wonderful, is that it helped us to isolate from others. You know, it allowed us to create social distancing when we need it. But I actually think it's continued to socially distance ourselves from each other. We have thousands of friends and we actually don't have many people we eat at the same table with anymore. So I suppose part of my hope is that we can reconnect with people. I mean, for me, I do it through my faith community. Uh, you know, we eat dinner every week. Uh, that's my church community. And, and that's kind of my little way of uh, creating a sense of community around my kids and community for myself. Uh, a group of people who can actually call me when I'm being a jerk. <laughs> they do, trust me. Uh, which doesn't happen with all my kind of internet based relationships around the world. They don't really know when I'm being a jerk. No. But, but the people I eat dinner with every Wednesday do. And they also encourage me when I'm really struggling. So I think that's really beautiful. And we wouldn't want to lose that by being online too much. No, no, for sure. And it's that kind of incidental stuff, isn't it? As life happens, mm. you can have people alongside you doing it with you. Definitely. Mm. So a word that's been kind of coming up, I don't know if you've noticed it much, but the, the concept of digital Sabbaths has been a bit of a buzzword over the last 12, 18 months, it seems. Um, could you maybe explain what a Sabbath is and why do you think uh, the idea of technological Sabbaths are gaining traction at the moment? Yeah. Uh, so I can't speak at a broader level, but Sabbath is, I think Sabbath is having a comeback at least as an idea, even in secular culture, people are curious about the idea of Sabbath. Uh, and obviously, Sabbath has to involve resting from work. So therefore, it has to involve the tech part. So what I mean by that is, um, I suppose I used to assume that if I worked, I needed to learn skills to work. But when I wanted to have a rest, I just needed to have a weekend. And so my assumption was that rest is what happens when I'm not working, as if it's not a skill, as if it just happens. <laughs> and I don't think that's true at all. I think what the, the, the fathers or mothers of the Sabbath realized was that actually rest in God and rest in yourself and rest as a family is something that's very hard to do in an always active, hyperactive world mm. where we're wanting more and we're working harder and we're always wishing for something else. Do you know what I mean? And and therefore, if we want to learn to rest, it has to be faith-filled. It needs to be intentional. It needs to be carved out. Mm. The reason the digital Sabbath is gaining momentum is that for an agrarian person, you know, a farmer, for example, well, then resting would be, I don't know, less physical activity. Uh, but my job as a knowledge worker is that I type and swipe and I'm on a screen, I'm communicating using the internet, that's what I do for a job. I'm on screens. And then on the weekend, what I would do is I would be typing and swiping, <laughs> being on screens and talking on the internet. It would just be different apps. But from a neuroplastic perspective, the brain can't tell the difference between Outlook and Instagram. Mm. And so therefore, I realized that if I was to actually rest deeply for a Sabbath, to love God and love others and and rest deeply in myself, I would need to reflect not only on what it might mean to work, but what it might look like to rest as well. And for me, the conclusion was I can't possibly rest from my work unless I turn off the internet yep. because it's the same thing that I do for work. And I'm exhausted because I'm mentally exhausted, not because I work too hard physically in the week. Uh, and therefore, digital Sabbath makes sense. And do you yourself practice uh, a form of digital Sabbath, like full day or part of a day? Oh, like yes. That? So for, I don't know, for nearly a decade, I've, I've turned off my phone and my devices on a Saturday. For me, I do Saturday because I was a pastor and Sunday was a work day. Yeah. Uh, so for 24 hours, yeah, I, I turn off my phone and I don't spend much time on the internet. When I say don't spend much time, I used to be completely kind of tech-free. But with kids and teenagers, actually, I hardly ever watch TV with them. And we do a family movie night on my Sabbath because we all enjoy it and it's a form of collective rest. Mm. Uh, but what I don't do is I don't check email. I don't look at social media. I don't check the weather. Uh, I might occasionally check a text message by turning the phone on and seeing if there's someone who needs me, for example. So I'm not, I must say I'm not religious about it, but I am <laughs> deliberate and I'm intentional in disconnecting. 
And I don't feel like it a lot of the time, but the harder I find it, to the harder it is to turn off my device for a day a week, the more I know I need it because I need to gain some independence from my screens and experience a day of meaningful activity outside of the online world for my brain, for my soul, for my relationships. And so, yeah, I do that as a practice, as a faith discipline. And so for anyone listening, uh, whether coming from a Christian background or not, um, would you have any advice for someone who wants to try something like that? Where are you to start? <laughs> Don't do it, it's too hard. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course, start slow. But the first thing I would say is, I mean, probably go cold turkey for one day, just as a hard experiment, like a biofeedback on yourself experiment. Yeah, see how you feel. Turn off all device. I mean, maybe tell people that you're not going to be available for that day, but yeah, pick a Saturday or Sunday and and turn off everything. Don't look at the internet. Don't look at a screen for 24 hours and just reflect on how you feel. If your hand reaches for your pocket because you're getting phantom vibrations or, or the dopamine receptors in your brain are going, feed me, feed me, well, then you might need to consider doing it a bit more regularly. But I'd, I'd start with just at least an experiment and, and get some feedback about it. Now, Dan, um, you were a pastor in a previous life we talked about before. Um, I imagine you have some just ref- like reflections on technology and what the Bible says about it. So ha- how does your Christian faith shape the way that you think about uh, the internet and screen time and technology? Is that somewhere in the background for you? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I've definitely shaped it in that way. Uh, I love I mean, there's a there's a famous passage in Deuteronomy, the, the Shema, you know, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And it goes on to talk about how you'll talk about God when you're walking, when you're on the road, when you're you know, <laughs> playing online games and everything else. But but I, I suppose what I love about the the vision that I have of humanity that comes from Jesus is that spirituality isn't something you do on a Sunday. Uh, it's not something that you just kind of compartmentalize into your life, like you know, a bit of yoga and a bit of prayer and a bit of meditation or thankfulness. But but all of life is infused with faith and with your experience of God as a spiritual person. So tech's no different. You know, there are some beautiful things about technology that allow us to love God and love others and to experience actually a kind of a more exciting, joyful humanity than if we didn't have some of the things we see online. Uh, And yet there's also real challenges if we allow it to become the gravitational center of everything at the expense of loving God and loving others and, and experiencing real life. So I don't know, I, I feel like the battle that I've always had in, in parenting, but also in my own life with making space from tech, the battle I've had with using tech really well, but also recognizing how addictive it can be and how much I don't like it changing my brain. Yeah, <laughs> That battle is also a battle of faith because it's a battle about me giving these things to God and saying, okay, what might it look like for me to love you and love others and to love myself and to become the type of person, you know, you want me to be someone who looks a bit more like Jesus. How would Jesus use tech in my situation? And that, that challenge is actually what has grown my character. So I, I don't, I don't regret the challenge. I think the challenge is actually what strengthens us if we're allowed to self-reflect and allow faith to come into all those parts of our life, including technology and parenting. Yeah, so there's, um, uh, I guess it's a matter of priorities in many ways, isn't it? Like technology can easily take a more prominent place than it deserves, and then naturally that will kind of skew your other priorities as well. Mm, Absolutely. You talked a bit about some of the things that you do in your faith communities. What does it kind of typically look like for you um, the rest of the week with your your faith communities, and how does that help you uh, navigate this stuff? Mm, So... I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. I'm a I'm one of those church pastors that never really did church services very well. Uh, so we we have micro churches now, um, and so church for me is like we meet at my house on a Sunday. And we we worship, we do some singing, we read some scripture, and uh, we eat together. And um, yeah, so we do that with our community. And there's a bunch of other communities that I'm part of that do that together. We eat once every week or every two weeks together, so that would be my dinner. Uh, we go co-steering and and uh, caving and other stuff on the weekend when when we can to take our kids on adventures. Uh, I pray on a Thursday morning with my neighbour, uh, and yeah, we just try to integrate faith into the 
community rhythms of our life, doing as many um, dangerous activities as possible. Well, a few dangerous ones and a few very, very sedentary ones. I think just having kids around is a dangerous activity. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) Right, and to wrap up, um, what are three resources that you would recommend for people that want to find out more um, in terms of technology and uh, the the sorts of things we've discussed today? Mm. Well, look, I love books. Uh, So recommending other people's books, I would recommend Oliver Berkman's 4,000 Weeks, I think is really, really good. Uh, about the philosophy of technology. Mm, I I do like Stolen Focus. It doesn't give you many solutions, but it's good for an overarching understanding of what's happening in the tech. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? It's fascinating. Mm. It's fascinating. Ah, what else would I read? I, look, I, I do love Patrick Lencioni's work. He's not really a productivity consultant, more of an organisational consultant, but... Just his fables are fantastic. So something like Death by Meetings is always a good read. Yeah, sounds fun. It was a pleasure having you on the show today, Dan. And uh, yeah, plenty to think about in the future. No, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Technology has shaped our habits and our daily life in ways we never would have thought possible half a century ago. It's easy to be enamoured by the latest gadgets, tools and toys that make life more comfortable, more effortless, more integrated. But we need to be careful about the things that we fall in love with. They might break our hearts and change our desires in unexpected ways. The author James K.A. Smith wrote a book called You Are What You Love. He talks about modern day liturgies and practices and the strange spiritual power that comes with routines, norms and traditions. And he's not talking about religious ceremonies, but everyday stuff that we reinforce through action and repetition. Every day we're orienting our desires and our actions to things we hold most sacred, often a mix of fulfilling obligations to those we care about and making a difference in our immediate community. But it's also finding time for the things that make us feel most alive. And in our affluent culture, it's easy to give in to the hedonistic, consumeristic, hyper-individualistic backdrop to feed our impulses, our desires, and our longings. We express ourselves through what we love, and many believe we find ourselves in what we love. Now, there's nothing implicitly wrong with these feelings, but it's worth asking, what do we love? Examining the course that we're setting for ourselves, both individually and as a collective. What kind of people do we want to become? And who do we want our kids to become? What habits and loves are we passing on to them? Isn't over-dependence on technology one of them? Does our culture worship technology even? I don't know about you, but it feels like everyone I talk to is concerned with the power that technology is wielding over our personal lives. For all the gains and comforts that it gives us, making our lives slightly easier, something is always lost, and too much of a good thing becomes a pretty bad thing eventually. We all know the internet can be a dark and unforgiving place, not the kind of playground we want our kids breaking bones on and becoming unhealthily attached to. So I'm thankful for people like Dan, people that can help us take steps to correct those unhelpful habits that are getting on top of us. And smart devices have become an uncomfortable addiction for many of us. Rather than finding ourselves, it becomes the vehicle to a shadow world where we all too easily lose ourselves, becoming more anxious, more irritable, more distracted, more polarised, more lonely. And disconnecting will undoubtedly be hard work, especially if we don't want to give it up. The Bible talks about the heart being deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The thing is, part of being human is giving our heart to things that don't deserve it, to give our time and energy and love to human creations. But the heart can also be restored and renewed and transformed, which is a fundamental aspect of Christian thought, that our desires, our longings and our loves can be redirected back to God who is worthy of our worship, thanks to Christ's sacrificial life, death, and resurrection. You see, change is possible. I loved Dan's emphasis on reshaping our habits through community. It's too hard to go it alone, and so creating a network of people who will make technological sacrifices together is a great first step in regaining some semblance of control. But I also appreciate that we have to set the example and start with ourselves in some way. We can't be angry with everyone else's bad habits if we're just as bad, if not worse. So owning our shortcomings and weaknesses is a crucial first step. For me, as a Christian, I feel I have a duty not to give technology more control over me than it deserves. I want to embrace activities that bring life, and life in abundance. And so reclaiming ground that the digital world has intruded on seems like a good place to start, 
and cleansing for the soul. Whether that's using morning, meal and night times to disconnect from technology and reconnect with loved ones instead, to pray, to meditate, to contemplate life, to read something stimulating, to rest from the tools and recalibrate my heart, habits and hopes. I hope you found this episode refreshing and practical. This is Deeper Questions. If you like this episode, then subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or you can check out some of our other content at thirdspace.org.au. 